I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. This week we're starting a new sermon series that I'm referring to as Awkward. And the reason we're calling it Awkward is because we're going to address topics that many of us, if we're totally honest, would prefer not to talk about. But nonetheless, these are things that we need to talk about. These are the kinds of things that you don't bring up at parties, the kinds of things that can make us pretty uncomfortable. These are the kinds of things that, honestly, I'd like to not have to preach about. But again, my conviction is that we as followers of Jesus and we as a church must talk about these things. I feel as though I have a responsibility to preach on these things. This series will be three weeks long, covering two controversial topics. Number one, what God has to say about homosexual practice. And number two, what God has to say about abortion. The third and final week is not going to be an additional topic. Instead, we're going to have a Sunday specifically dedicated to answering questions that people have about these sermons. As you see on the screen behind me, you can email me questions for Sunday, June 28th, and we're going to do our best to address them. So as you hear this sermon, as you hear next week's sermon, take down notes, write down objections, things that you disagree on. That way we can talk about them more in a couple weeks. We're going to answer those questions. We're going to address some common objections to what we're going to talk about today and next Sunday as well. But that brings us to where we are today, and that's what the Bible says about homosexual practice. Now, you'll notice that I'm specifically using that phrase, homosexual practice. I'm using that phrase because this sermon is not about the validity of homosexual orientation. This sermon is not about whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal. Those are related and yet different questions. Today, we are specifically focusing on one question, and that's this. When a man has sexual relations with another man or a woman with another woman, does the Bible call that sin? That's the question that we're talking about. So, of course, why don't we want to talk about an issue like this? Well, there could be lots of reasons we don't want to talk about an issue like this one. Maybe it's because, for many of us, this isn't just some theological debate to be had, an argument to be won, or an issue to be addressed. For a lot of us, this is about people. People that we know and people that we love. We look into our loved one's eyes, we look into our friend's eyes, and we see their pain, we see their joy, we see their hopes, their fears, their dreams. And when we look into those people's eyes, we understand that this isn't just some topic to be debated or argument to be won. We think of people. We think of faces. Maybe we don't want to talk about this because we don't want to be called bigots or homophobes. And trust me, the last thing I want is to have Prairie View Christian Church painted as the next Westboro Baptist Church. The last thing I want is to be painted as some backwards preacher. Maybe we don't want to talk about it because we struggle with it ourselves. You know, it's one thing to admit that I struggle with pride or greed or anger or some vague form of lust, but I could never admit that I struggle with this sin. Because this sin's just so much different than the other ones, right? Maybe we don't want to talk about it because honestly, we have thought about it, and we just straight up don't like what the Bible has to say about this issue. 
But the truth is that we must talk about it. In the month of March, Indianapolis was the center of national attention with the Religious Freedom Restoration Amendment. And so much of that debate, so much of that anger involved the question of how the rights of religious people opposed to homosexual practice and the rights of homosexual people themselves can somehow coexist. This week, prominent Christian leader Tony Campolo announced his support of churches blessing and affirming practicing homosexual couples. Later this month, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on whether the Constitution allows for same-sex marriage. In 2016, we'll have a presidential election on our hands, and you can bet that every single candidate who runs will be asked about where they stand on this issue. This topic is everywhere we look. It's always a topic of conversation. Thus, we as Christians and we as the church can't just sit back and bury our heads in the sand. We must talk about this from a biblical perspective. We can't just ignore it because it makes us uncomfortable or because it could be awkward. So with that, let's shift to actually reading what the Bible has to say on this subject and what that means for us as a church. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. If you want to use one of our chair Bibles, that'll be located on page one. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But let's pray together, and then we'll get started in Genesis. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you've given us your word to read and to understand and to submit to who you are. God, there are so many topics in this world where we hear very conflicting messages, and we don't always know what to think and what to feel and and how to talk about those issues and what to say and what not to say. But I pray that we would listen to what your word has to say this morning. I pray that all of us would have open hearts and open eyes and open minds and open ears to whatever you have to say on this subject even if it goes against our guts. God, I pray that we would address this issue honestly, but I pray that we would address this issue humbly as well. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that every sin can be forgiven through your son Jesus, even the ones that we tell ourselves are worse than all the others. We thank you for your forgiveness, we thank you for his blood, we thank you for the cross. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So with your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, I'd like to set three ground rules to keep in mind as we read, and three ground rules to keep in mind throughout the entirety of this sermon, three ground rules to keep in mind really all the time. Anytime we're living as followers of Jesus, anytime we're reading Scripture, these are three things worth considering. Ground rule number one. The Bible is our authority. It's that simple. One of Prairie View's values is that we submit to what the Bible says for both our teaching and our practice. So if we believe that the Bible is God's inspired, authoritative word, his way of revealing who he is to humanity, then we as a church believe that we must listen. God's people must listen. So for the Christian who submits to Scripture... 
We can't just say, well, I know the Bible takes a firm and clear stance on something. I know what it says. I know there's really no way around it. But my God's just not like that. We can't say that. For the Christian who submits to Scripture, if we believe the Bible is the inspired revelation of God's character, then we must come to grips with what it says about who God is, what God approves of, and even what God disapproves of. And once we understand those things, once we understand what Scripture has to say, what Scripture tells us about God, the question is not, is God actually like that? The question then is, okay, knowing that God is, in fact, like that, do I still want to worship him? Do I still want to obey him? Do I still want to submit to him? Ground rule number one, the Bible is our authority. Now, the second ground rule is one that some Christians might think goes without saying, but the truth is it doesn't go without saying. This is something that we must clearly and loudly affirm and articulate. That's this, ground rule number two, all people are created in God's image. Every single person, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of whether or not they are actively pursuing their sexual desires, regardless of whether or not they are abstaining from their sexual desires, every single person is created in God's image and thus is worthy of dignity and value and respect. And our treatment of homosexuals should reflect that. Now, doubtlessly, there have been far too many times when Christians and the church have failed to reflect that belief. Even some of us in this room have said or done things that paint homosexuals as less than human. And if we have done that, if we are guilty of that, then we should repent of mistreating human beings created by God himself. When we attack people created in God's image, somehow make them feel like they have less dignity or less value as human beings, then we're not only attacking them, but we're attacking the God who created them. So if we have been guilty of mistreating homosexuals, then we are called to repent of that sin. The third ground rule is this, the final ground rule. All people are sinners. Again, it sounds simple. But we as Christians must never forget that we don't need God's grace any less than the homosexual sitting next to us on the bus or the one behind us in the checkout line at the grocery store or the one in the cubicle next to us or the one a few houses down. All people fall short of God's glory. And all people who are saved are saved by grace. And while our sin may look different than theirs, in the big scheme of things, we're all on equal footing as sinners in need of mercy. And that means for us as Christians in this debate, in this discussion, there is absolutely no room for pride. There's absolutely no room for arrogance. There's absolutely no room for us to look down upon those who struggle with this sin because we are all sinners. Now, we don't often want to talk about this subject, but we need to talk about this subject. We have those three ground rules in place, and now we read. Genesis chapter 1, 
verses 26 through 28, and then we'll jump over to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and other, ever, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fulfill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in these verses, we see something about God's design for male and female before sin and corruption enter creation. Simply put, as we read Genesis, we see the complementarity of the two sexes. In God's original design, male and female complemented each other perfectly from the anatomical, sexual, procreative perspectives. You might simply say that in God's eyes... Male and female are the perfect fit. Together, male and female become one flesh. And according to Genesis, this is how God intended it to be. Male and female joined together in marriage, holding fast to one another, subduing creation, and fruitfully multiplying. Now you notice in these verses, there's a lot of talk of birds and fish and livestock and creeping things. We're going to come back to that, but just... Keep that in mind, all those animals that Genesis mentions. Let's jump forward to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22, and then Leviticus 20, verse 13. The second big passage in the Old Testament to address this topic. Leviticus 18:22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. God uses the word abomination when referring to homosexual practice. And scholars argue about what the best sense of that word is, what that word really means. And the best definition they can come up with is that that word is referring to something that God hates. Now, why does God hate it so much? God doesn't hate it just because it's offensive to him. 
going against his good design, an act and a symptom of rebellion. God hates it because it's degrading to them. Imagine you're a parent, and your child is having this kind of habit, having this kind of action that is offensive to you, that is insulting to you, that you consider to be a form of rebellion. Over time, you're going to grow to hate that habit. You're going to grow to hate that thing. But you're not just going to hate it because it offends you or because it bothers you or because they're rebelling against you. If you love your child, you're going to hate it because you see what it's doing to your child. You believe it is hurting your child. And so you begin to hate that thing, not just because it bothers you, but because it's degrading to them. We seem to see the same thing here with God and homosexual practice. God then commands Moses that if this happens within God's people, then those two people should be put to death. Now, on a subject like this, if there's one verse in the Bible that Christians could take out, it's probably a verse like this. It seems stunningly cruel. It seems stunningly harsh. And it is certainly a much stronger stance against homosexual practice than any of the other surrounding cultures at that time. But we do know this. In John 8, Jesus rejects the death penalty for the woman caught in adultery. People are holding stones, ready to kill her, then and there. But Jesus turns them away. Now that being said, even though Jesus rejects the death penalty then and there for that sinful woman, he doesn't hesitate to tell her, go and sin no more. So while he rejects the death penalty, he does not affirm the sin itself. So when you put these things together, what Genesis says, what Leviticus says, it becomes clear. The Old Testament unequivocally rejects homosexual practice. The Old Testament considers an abomination that goes against God's good design for male and female from the beginning. It is considered a rebellion against God. It's considered degrading for those who participate in it. In other Old Testament passages, like Sodom and Gomorrah, there are passages in the book of Judges, the presence of homosexual practice serves as a proof of the death of man's sin. Now, of course, if you're well-versed in this debate and talking about this issue, now is the time when you might say, okay, sure, the Old Testament condemns homosexual practice. So what? The Old Testament also condemns eating shellfish, but you're not preaching a sermon series on that. The Old Testament condemns wearing mixed fibers. And on top of that, aren't we New Testament people anyway? Well, that argument has holes of its own to be totally honest, but let's run with it. Because even if we accept that argument, the hard truth is that the New Testament takes an even stronger stance than the Old Testament, believe it or not. Let's look at that by reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. Paul starts out, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed against sinful man. That's a pretty big statement to make. That's the kind of statement that you would expect from some guy standing outside a stadium with a megaphone. So why in the world would Paul make a statement that big? What makes him so sure of that statement? Well, Paul makes that statement because he looks around and he sees sin running amok. In Paul's mind, in a way, sin is both the crime and its own punishment. People are guilty of sin, and thus their punishment is that God hands them over to their sin. Tim Keller argues about this passage that the worst punishment God could ever give a sinner in this life is to let them have what they want. That's what Paul seems to be getting at here. And Paul's prime example for sin running amok, the reason he thinks sin is running amok, is because he sees homosexual practice. Paul argues that because mankind is sinful, because mankind is a bunch of idolaters, they reject the truth about God. They reject the truth about themselves. And they do these things. You'll notice it's not the other way around. Paul argues that because they are sinners, because they are idolaters, they do these things. Paul argues that homosexual practice is contrary to nature. In other words, it's not the way things should be. And Paul seems to be hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember the mention of the birds and the fish and the creeping things there? In Genesis, those things are to be subdued. But in Romans, they're being worshipped. Mankind is sinful. People have become idolaters. And their sin is so devastating that they forget the most obvious thing, the complementarity of male and female. We see another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Remember how we talked about that harsh punishment of Leviticus chapter 20, the death penalty. When you really think about it, this punishment in 1 Corinthians 6 is worse. In Leviticus, the focus was on this life. Because you've committed this sin, you don't get to live this life anymore. That's the punishment. But here the focus is eternity. Because you've committed this thing, you don't get to inherit the kingdom of God. And the only penalty worse than the death penalty in this life is the death penalty in eternity. If you ask that woman in John chapter 8, I imagine she'd say that that would be a far worse fate than stoning. It's also very important that as we read a passage like 1 Corinthians 6, that we don't forget that there are other sins listed there. That at least in Paul's minds are just as sinister, are just as deadly as the sin of homosexual practice. And yet we often turn a blind eye to those sins like reviling or thievery or greed. This is a far worse punishment than just the death penalty. And it's not just homosexual practice as the only sin that deserves death. So the most prominent Old Testament and New Testament passages on the subject are clear. They are unanimous. Homosexual practice is to be rejected as sin. But again, if you're well-versed in the debate, this might be a good time to break out the other classic argument. Well, wait a minute, what about Jesus? Because Jesus never said anything about this. That's true. Jesus never explicitly addresses homosexual practice. But before you get too confident, think about what Jesus said on other related issues of sexual sin. When it came to lust, Jesus said, cut out your eye, throw it away. When it came to divorce, Jesus said, Moses only gave it to you because of the hardness of your heart. And let what God has joined together, let not man separate. What about remarriage? Well, if you're not doing it after a biblically justified divorce, then that constitutes adultery. And what about adultery? Well, if you lust, you've already committed it in your heart. On every single one of these things... Jesus takes an even firmer, stronger stance than the Old Testament. And not only that, consider this. Jesus never hesitated to correct his opponents on misunderstandings of sexual sin. He corrected them on their misunderstandings of lust and divorce and remarriage and adultery, all the things that we just talked about. And Jesus' peers, where would they have looked for guidance on homosexual practice? Where would they have looked for teaching on what to think about this thing? They would have looked to the Old Testament. They would have looked to Genesis and Leviticus. They would have come to the conclusion that homosexual practice is an abomination that goes against God's design. If they were wrong about that, wouldn't Jesus have corrected them? After all, he corrected them on everything else. And on top of that, if he strengthened all the other Old Testament understandings of sexual sin, then why would he weaken on this one? 
It's true that Jesus never explicitly addressed this issue during his ministry. However, an argument from silence is a sword that cuts both ways. So wrapping it all up, the text of the Bible itself offers no justification for homosexual practice under any circumstances. It is unanimously rejected as sin. But if we as a church, if we as Christians believe that, if we submit to what the Bible has to say about it, what do we do now? What comes next? How do I treat the homosexual person who I meet on the street? Or the person who comes into our church to worship? What are we to do? Several things. Number one, we are to love homosexuals. Period. We are to serve homosexuals. Period. We are to tell them the truth once we've loved them and served them and get the opportunity to tell them the truth. And really, telling them the truth is just another way of loving and serving them. We're called to tell them the truth that they are created in God's image. We're called to tell them the truth that Christ died for them and that because of that, they have hope. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In the book of Romans, Paul takes all that time talking about the seriousness and the depth and the punishment of sin. But he spends just as much time, if not more, talking about the richness and the glory of salvation in Jesus. Romans 3, starting in verse 22. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are called to remind homosexuals that they can be redeemed, that they can be forgiven, that they can be justified the same way you and I were redeemed and forgiven and justified. We read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. We didn't read verse 11. In that verse we read, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We might be tempted to picture the Corinthians sitting back as Paul lists these sins, these heinous actions, and the Corinthians are sitting there thinking, That's right. Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot let them in under any circumstances, when really that's not how it would have been at all. When these people heard that list of sins, they would have been reminded that I used to do that. That was me. But I've been washed. But I've been sanctified. He even calls these Corinthians saints the people who were guilty of these things. They can't go back in time. They can't change the fact that they've committed these sins. But Paul calls them saints anyway because they have been washed, because they have been sanctified, 
because they have been justified, because they have been forgiven. We're to call, we're called to tell homosexuals that they can find their identity in Christ. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes talks about a friend named Gary who was dying of AIDS in his final days. And Hayes writes this, Gary worried that the gay apologists encouraged homosexual believers to draw their identity from their sexuality and thus to shift the ground of their identity subtly and idolatrously away from God. We're called to tell these people not to believe the lies that the world would have them believe. That you can only find your identity in sexual expression. The insult, the patronizing message that who you are, the core part of your identity, can be reduced to who you're attracted to. Your identity is more than that. And you can find a new identity in Christ. Not one that's reduced to who you're attracted to. We're called to tell them the truth by asking them to repent of their sin. We do that humbly, ready to admit that sometimes we're guilty of trying to pick the splinter out of someone else's eye while ignoring the log in our own. We're also called to admit that we don't have the right to ask others to repent if we're not willing to repent ourselves. What repentance looks like for the homosexual is rejecting those homosexual practices and committing to celibacy in the context of community. We ask people to repent of their sin because, as Robert Gagnon writes, Jesus did not confuse love with toleration of all behaviors, and neither should the church. We're called to serve as a family for them. Some will say that celibacy is a burden too heavy for someone to carry, and they're right if we expect homosexual brothers and sisters to do it alone. Others will insist that a life of celibacy is a sentence to a life of loneliness, even though there are a whole lot of married people out there who are very lonely, and a whole lot of people out there who have a different sexual partner every night and yet wake up the next morning more lonely than they were before. Thus the church comes alongside these people. We bear the burden of celibacy together. We offer a family to those who otherwise would be lonely. We're called to support them through the struggle, knowing that just like your sin and just like my sin, temptation will come, mistakes will be made, we all stumble. But we commit to lifting one another up in this long journey of faithfulness to our Lord Jesus. Richard Hayes shares again in Gary's final letter he was writing to him as he was dying of AIDS. Gary wrote, Are homosexuals to be excluded from the community of faith? Certainly not. But anyone who joins such a community should know that it is a place of transformation, of discipline, of learning, and not merely a place to be comforted or indulged. May we as Christians... May we as a church accept the weighty responsibility of sharing the gospel with homosexuals. May we love them. May we serve them. May we welcome them to worship with us and embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ as they repent and believe. May we be so radically kind and radically 
humble and radically gracious and radically loving that no one in their right mind would ever refer to us as bigoted or homophobic. The church is by no means a perfect community, but we are called to be a repenting community. May we all repent of our sin, whatever our sin looks like. May we all turn to the cross and the lordship of Jesus. May we find our hope and our identity in him. He's the only person who can offer us hope and identity in eternity. The things that the world tries to sell us, that we can find hope and identity and fulfillment and meaning in those things, in our stuff, in our looks, in our sexuality, those are all promises that this world can't keep. We're called to repent of our sin, to follow the lordship of Jesus, find our eternal hope and our eternal identity in him and in him alone, no matter what sin we wrestle with. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you when your word speaks clearly on something. There are a lot of times where your word isn't as clear as we would sometimes like it to be. But God, on a subject like this, even when your word is clear, that doesn't make it necessarily easy to come to grips with it. I pray that as we think about and consider and ask questions about what this all means, I pray that we would do so humbly. I pray that we would turn turn to your word as our source of authority, as our source of guidance, as our source of hope. God, I pray that we wouldn't take the easy road of affirming sin because we just don't want to take a controversial stance. But I also pray that we wouldn't take the easy road of isolating ourselves from those who struggle with this sin. I pray that instead of taking those easy roads, we would take the hard road, the road where we do take a stand, the road where we are honest and bold about what your word says, but that we walk the tightrope between honesty and boldness and courage, and on the other side, love and service and humility. I pray that you would give us those things as we encounter a world that is becoming more and more confused about who you are and who we are as human beings. Thank you for your son Jesus who washes and sanctifies and justifies even the worst of sinners, people like us. I pray that we wouldn't view our sin as somehow less offensive as the sins of other people. I pray that we would be vigilant against our sins, that we would refuse to offer our sins any safe harbor. I pray that we would repent. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to serve the people around us, no matter how uncomfortable it may be, no matter how awkward we think it is, no matter how scared we might be that we're going to stick out like sore thumbs. I pray that us as a church, that we would stick out as a counterculture 
in a world that is confused, in a world that is lost, and that we might point, point people to the same hope and the same salvation that we found ourselves. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've talked a lot about the Lordship of Christ in this morning's sermon, about how the Lordship of Christ requires that we give up things. The Lordship of Christ requires that we find our identity in Him, not finding our identity in the things that we want in this world, or even the things that this world tells us are supposed to define us. But if you have not yet submitted to the Lordship of Christ, if you have not yet repented of sin, if you have not yet been washed, if you are not yet being sanctified, if you haven't been justified, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you, answer questions, whatever you want to talk to them about. So take advantage of that as we sing this last song together.